Good morning. Welcome to Okotoks Calvary Fellowship. Thank you for joining us as we study through God's Word. Well, when I first approached our passage for this morning, I thought we would just cover it in one message. Because the subject matter just flows together so beautifully. However, the deeper I got into studying into the chapter itself, I realized that that wasn't going to happen. In fact, it became pretty clear to me that in order to cover this properly, it's going to take three messages to cover. So, the best laid plans. <laughs> but in this chapter, it's remarkable how Jesus speaks about the end times. And I found that people are very interested in what the Bible has to say about the end of the age. About what the Bible says about God's plan and what the destiny of this planet and the human race is. And Jesus speaks very specifically here uh, and to this in this chapter. So with that said, turn in your, our, your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 13 as we can continue our study through the book of Mark. And this morning we're going to cover the first 13 verses. So verse 1 says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Now, we need to remember that Jesus and his disciples are just visiting in Jerusalem. They don't live there. They live up north in the Galilee in the region of Judea, but like any faithful Jewish man, Jesus went up to Jerusalem several times a year for the great feasts of Israel, and one of those feasts was the feast of Passover. So this would not have been the first time that any of these men had been in the temple. They would have seen the magnificence of all the buildings and the stones. And, but even though they have seen it many, many times before, it just hits them again fresh. And you know what I mean, right? Some things are just that beautiful and that majestic that even though you may have seen them a thousand times before, it still amazes you. You know, I'm kind of like that with the mountains. I mean, I literally see them every day. Yet some days I'll look at them again and they take my breath away. Well, this is what's happening to the disciples here. The majesty and the splendor of the temple has literally just blown them away. Friends, back in Jesus' day, the Temple Mount was a spectacular sight. You had the marble porches and colonnades. The floors lay out in front of you like a brilliant white marble field. <laughs> the temple itself would have been covered in gold plates on the outside. And when the sun shone on them, you couldn't even look because it would blind you. It was so bright. It was just magnificent. But I want you to look at verse 1 again. It says, what manner of stones? Interesting. 
And now if you go to Israel today, you can walk down the rabbinical tunnels. They're just north of the western wall. If you're facing the western wall, you know, uh, the Wailing Wall, as they call it, just to the left, there's tunnels that you can go in and you can go underneath and you can see some of these huge stones that were used to build the ancient temple grounds. And the biggest stone there is 45 feet long. It's 9 feet high. It's 11 feet wide, and it weighs 517 tons. Take a look. That's a picture that we took when we were uh, under there. So that's 45 feet long. Ryan, go to the next one just for perspective. You can see where the line hits, how long this stone actually is, how high this stone is. But what's amazing about some of these stones is that you couldn't even lift them to put them in place with one of our modern cranes. They're that heavy. And archaeologists are left scratching their head as to just how they got there. Here's a little bit of extra info, no charge. When the temple was being built, they couldn't make any noise on the temple grounds whatsoever. There were no hammers. There were no chisels. There was no workers heave-hoeing. <laughs> you couldn't do any of that. In fact, all these stones had to be pre-cut many, many miles away from the site in a quarry. And then they had to be transported to the temple and placed into position. And because they couldn't make any sound, no chiseling of these stones, they had to be precisely cut and put into place. So how exactly did they cut these and quarry and put them into place with pr such precision that you could not even put a playing card in between the stones. It's absolutely amazing. And when you think that these stones were merely the retaining wall for the temple, how awesome then would the stones in the main building have been? It's incredible. So the disciples were amazed even though they had seen these stones many times before. And you might think that Jesus would be inclined to agree with them, right? Well, look how he responds in verse 2. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And you would have to think that the disciples at this moment would have thought, that's crazy. This temple is so imposing. It's massive and strongly built. It's the most secure building in all of Israel. How on earth is that even possible? I mean, you can't possibly mean that, Jesus. And Jesus would have said to them, that's exactly what I mean. And it happened just the way Jesus said it would some 40 years later. 
You see, during that time, there was a widespread Jewish revolution against the Romans in Palestine. And during that time, Jewish rebels had enjoyed some great successes against the Romans. But ultimately, Rome, with all their power, with all their legions, they crushed the Jewish people, and Jerusalem was leveled, including the temple. And it said during that fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 that the last surviving people, the Jewish people in the city, they fled to the temple and they shut themselves in because it was the strongest and most secure building in the city. But that didn't stop the Romans. They just surrounded the temple and they just waited with the idea of starving them out. But according to Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, one night a drunken soldier started a fire that soon engulfed the whole building. And all the people inside were cruelly incinerated. And in the fire, all that ornate gold that was around the temple melted. And as it melted, it was dripping down and it filled the cracks between the stones And the soldiers began to dismantle the temple stone by stone just to get at that gold. They even engineered explosions to completely destroy the temple grounds. And as they did this, they literally fulfilled every word of Jesus. Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be all thrown down. And this dismantling and destruction of the temple was so thorough that both historians and archaeologists do not even know today exactly where the temple ever stood. If you look on the screen, you're going to see many of those stones today in Jerusalem. These would have been thrown down from the top of the Temple Mount. And they don't look all that big until you see the people standing beside them. These are massive stones that were thrown up from the top where the Temple Mount would have been. Show me the next. So look at that man standing beside some of those stones. They're huge. Absolutely huge. And they were all one by one, systematically thrown down from the Temple Mount. Not one stone laid upon another. Now, there's a reason why I give you so much background details here. The words of Jesus in verse 2 were literally fulfilled exactly as he said they would. And this then gives us sort of a key to the rest of the chapter. If Jesus, prophetically speaking, here literally, (laughs) then it is reasonable to assume he is speaking literally as he continues. He's not going to bounce back and forth between literal and allegorical, is he? Well, the disciples are fascinated with what Jesus has just told them. And now they want to ask him more about it here 
in verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So they walk across the Kidron Valley and they go up to the Mount of Olives together and you can just see Jesus discussing all these things with his disciples. And if you notice, they actually asked two questions of him here in verse 4. The first one was, when will these things be fulfilled? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And now this introduces us to one of the most amazing teachings Jesus ever gave. And it's called the Olivet Discourse because it was actually said on the Mount of Olives. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this discussion in their Gospels. But you can only really get this complete picture of what Jesus said here by combining all of them together because each one of them highlights and emphasizes a different aspect of what Jesus was teaching. Now the first part of this question, when will these things be, Mark does not really record an answer to this in his gospel. But Luke goes into great detail in Luke chapter 21 regarding the siege and destruction of the city of Jerusalem as well as the destruction of the temple. And you can go and look at that at a later time. But then there's that second question that the disciples ask here. What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now we need to understand when they asked these things, they weren't referring only to the destruction of the temple. They were referring to the end of the age, and we know this from how Matthew records this discussion. But we also know it because of what would have been in the minds of these disciples, Because in their minds, you could not have the destruction of the temple without the end of the age coming. Surely, if the temple's destroyed, the end of the age was going to be fulfilled. And Jesus is going to tell us about the signs of the ends of the time, just not this week. (laughs) This morning, Jesus is going to tell us what the sign is not. And next time we'll look at what Jesus says the sign is. So look carefully now here in verse 5. It says, And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars... And rumors of wars do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. 
Notice, first of all, Jesus said, take heed that no one deceives you. And friends, how important is it for us as Christians to be careful that we are not deceived? And why do we need to be careful? Because there will be false Christs. There will be false messiahs. There will be false teachers representing Jesus in a false way. My friends, we need to be checking and making sure that our faith is not a counterfeit. Where do we do that? God's Word. There is a lot of fake truth. Here's an oxymoron. A lot of fake truth out there. There's a lot of false things masquerading as truth. My goodness, you're even being encouraged today to have your own truth. So you better be careful. Look, false prophets and teachers do not wear a sign saying, I'm a false teacher. They don't stand in front of you and announce to you, I am about to deceive you. Please open up your Bibles so that I can twist the Scriptures for you. Friends, we need to understand something clearly. A false prophet is not wrong or heretical about everything. If he was wrong about everything, you wouldn't give him five minutes. And he may be right on 80% of what he teaches. But they're wrong on the most important things, on that critical teaching about who Jesus is, what Jesus did. And that's why Jesus said, take heed that no one deceives you. There will be many that come in his name, and they will deceive many. But Jesus also mentions something here in verse 7 we need to be aware of. Notice he says, But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Jesus is saying, yes, there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of more wars. But please understand, whenever a people or a nation are in a time of warfare, whenever civilians are being affected, whenever people are dying, whenever there's that sense of national tragedy and calamity, there is this tendency for us to think, this is it. This must be the end. Jesus is coming. And when tragedy besets us, it creates in us a sense of urgency to get right with God. And these calamities, whether man-made or natural, make us think that this is the end. But notice exactly what Jesus says here. It says, these things must happen. But they are not the sign. And what that means is that the sign is not going to be a war. It's not going to be an earthquake. It's not going to be a famine. 
It's not going to be a pandemic. These are not the signs of the end. And I'll tell you what the sign is, but you'll have to come back next week. But I do want you to notice a phrase that Jesus uses in verse 8. For a nation will rise against nation and the kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. And when Jesus uses this term, the beginnings of sorrows, it's a very specific phrase. It literally means the beginning of labor pains. It's an idea that the world is giving birth to a new world. And there are going to be labor pains involved with that. Now, I have not personally experienced labor pains myself. But I have noticed a couple of things from observation. As the time for birth approaches, the pains become more severe. The pains become more frequent. The pains are like closer together, right? And what Jesus is saying is that even though wars and earthquakes and famines aren't the sign, <clears throat> at the same time, we should expect that as the time of the end draws closer, that we will see more frequent wars and more intense wars more frequent earthquakes and more severe earthquakes. More frequent famines, more extreme famines. Because they will all follow after this pattern of labor pains. As the baby is getting ready to be born. But Jesus has something else to say to us beginning here at verse 9. And this is more of a personal message specifically geared for his followers. Verse 9 says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Wow. <laughs> if earthquakes and wars and catastrophes weren't bad enough, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I got a special burden for you now. <laughs> From the time I leave this earth, until I return, you're going to face persecution. And friends, this is a particularly difficult subject for us to talk about here. 
And it's not because you're not paying attention. And it's not because you don't know or don't understand these things from the Bible. But because if we're honest, we are so out of touch about what persecution really is. We may experience a little social persecution for the sake of the gospel. But really, we have no idea what it means to suffer for the sake of the gospel. We don't understand the idea of losing our lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. That concept is so distant from us. But friends, it is not so distant to believers in the rest of the world. Jesus says you're going to be persecuted. You're going to experience great opposition and hardship. But amongst all that, you still have to get the gospel out to the world. Did you see that in verse 10? The gospel must first be preached to all nations. You know, sometimes when Christians are persecuted, we kind of feel like we need to circle the wagons. You know, we need to conserve our energy here. I mean, the last thing we need to be doing is reaching out. Especially when we're being persecuted so greatly. But Jesus says, no, when you are persecuted, you still need to get the gospel out. I want to paint a picture for you like this. You're surrounded by the enemy on all sides. You don't have any room to maneuver at all. The enemy is pressing in and all that is left for you is to take up your arms and charge into the battle. It's all that's left to do. And so what Jesus is saying here is go forward. Always keep moving forward. Preach the gospel. Spread it to all the nations. You know, and one of the ways that we do that here in spreading the gospel is we use technology. You know, the internet has been used as a tool for tremendous evil. And some of that evil has affected families even here in terrible and painful ways. But it's also an incredible tool to be used for tremendous good. Whether it be through Christian radio or television, live broadcasts of worship services, podcasts of good, solid, biblical teaching from God's Word, using whatever means are at our disposal to get God's Word out to the nations. But let me be clear here. The technology never replaces our personal outreach and interaction with other people. That's still the most important thing. It's just one of many tools that we have to aid us in sharing the gospel. But, the, but friends, the gospel needs to be our passion. Even in times of severe persecution. Well, our time is winding down for this morning, and I want to look at verses 12 and 13. Now, brother will betray brother to death, 
and, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Stop right there. You know, when we read this, we may be tempted to say, how do we stand against that? It's important to consider that if you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, if you are committed to him, in that moment of great stress, he will give you the resources to stand. He'll give you the words to say, as it says in verse 11. He promises that. He will give you whatever you need in that moment, no matter how difficult And I don't know what could be more difficult than a brother betraying a brother to death, right? I mean, think about it. Your own brother turning you over to the authorities. Your own father or your own children betraying you. Well, he's a Christian. You, you come and take him away. And the followers of Jesus should expect the most painful kinds of rejection. And the most painful types of betrayal as they seek to stand strong for Jesus Christ. And I think it's easy to underestimate just how difficult this persecution can be. Let me give you uh, some examples. If I came from an Orthodox Jewish family, they might consider me a blasphemer and count me as dead for choosing Christ. If I came from a strict Muslim family, I might be rejected by my family. I might literally be killed for choosing Jesus Christ. If I came from a Hindu family and Hindu... In India, I could be rejected and martyred for choosing Jesus. In China, I might be allowed to practice Christianity, but only in one of their state-sponsored churches. And if I, as a pastor, ran afoul of the state-sponsored church, you know, I went rogue, (laughs) I could wind up in jail. Did you know that There have been over 5,500 churches demolished in China since November. In Sudan, I might literally be killed or enslaved by the Muslim army. In Indonesia, I might be given a choice by Muslims to convert to Islam or die. In Colombia, if I was a missionary, I might be kidnapped and kept for ransom. My friends, don't kid yourself. The age of martyrs is not over. According to Open Doors World Watch, Brother Andrew's ministry, in 2021, 360 million Christians, one in seven, one in seven believers, suffered significant persecution we're not talking social persecution we're talking significant with estimates of over a hundred thousand christians or more we have no way of 
fully tracking it, that were killed for their faith. And then I look at my own Christian life. It makes me feel a little uncomfortable. It makes me ask myself, what kind of a stand am I making for Jesus Christ? What kind of a sacrifice will I make for Jesus in the midst of my comfort and ease? Am I lukewarm? Do I only serve Him when it's convenient? Do I only give Him the leftovers? See what the Lord says in verse 13. But he who endures to the end be saved the greek word here for endures literally translates to remain under i don't know about you but given my fallen nature (laughs) that is not what i want to do in a time of trial or persecution I don't want to remain under it. (laughs) My prayer is, God, get me out of it. (laughs) But there are times and places where Jesus calls you to remain under and not to compromise. You see, we can be so desperate for an escape from the trial or so desperate to escape from the difficulty that we compromise. Instead, God says, remain under, but keep moving forward. So let me ask you this morning, what will shake you in your Christian life? Will events shake you? Will catastrophes? Will wars, earthquakes, famines? Will a great economic downturn What if a friend or a close loved one walks away from the Lord? Will that shake you in your Christian life? Friends, we need to be able to say, my commitment to you, Lord, is not based on events. My commitment to you is not based on other people. My commitment to you is based on the greatness of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross of Calvary. You gave it all for me, Jesus. How could I give any less to you? And that's the place where the Lord wants our hearts this morning. So let's pray now and ask the Lord to do that work in our hearts. Father, I know we become so complacent so easy for us to get in the car and drive to church if we decide to go. We have very little Im- that impedes us from being able to meet with your, with other brothers and sisters, other ones of your kids, to fellowship, to study your word. when brothers and sisters around the world know that 
They're in danger the moment they leave their home. Lord, I pray you would really stir up a passion and a fire in our hearts for the gospel. To recognize the birth pangs, the labor pains, And although they're not the sign, they are certainly pointing towards the sign of your imminent return. Lord, we don't know how long we have left. And there's a world out there that desperately needs to know you. So Lord, stir our hearts. Help us to surrender regardless of the circumstances and to keep moving forward to let the world know of this incredible salvation that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening. If you guys have any questions, comments, or concerns, please feel free to message us on our Facebook page or on Instagram. God bless.